Welcome to the Grace South Bay Church Podcast. I'm Matt Cabot, your host and elder at Grace South Bay. Each week we have a Q&A conversation with our pastors about their sermons. We talk theology and we get into the Bible. And we discuss how to live out our faith as Christians in Silicon Valley and beyond. Today we continue our conversation on our sermon series from Leviticus. In a sermon titled, God's Economy, Pastor Stephen unpacks God's rules for how we should live and how blessings are built into those rules. We're talking about rest, restoration, and redemption today as we dive into Leviticus chapter 25. Glad you're with us. Let's dig in. So, Stephen, the title of your sermon is God's Economy. How is God's economy different from our present economy? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And how long do we have? Uh, Yeah, maybe I, well, maybe I should have chosen a different sermon title. (laughs) Uh, In my infinite study and experience of economics, uh, I would say that a good way to summarize uh, our economy is... uh, more, better, faster. Um, mm. Get get as much as you can. Uh, get you know, move up, get better, increase, grow, um, and uh, you'll notice that contentment was not one of those words that I That's used. That's true. Very um, true. And uh, you know, I'm I'm not just talking about like the difference between. Um, the way God wants us to use our money and capitalism. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about economy-wise, but more in the way things operate. Um, And I think what we see with God is that there's an intentionality with which He set things up for His people. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, here in this passage, God is talking to Moses um, on Mount Sinai about how things will work in Israel once the people make it to the land that He is preparing for them. Uh, in Canaan, the promised land. Um, And we know uh, in the next couple books that he is going to uh, determine that certain parts of the land are going to be given to certain tribes, and certain quadrants of those plots are going to be given to certain households, Mm -hmm. and certain areas are going to be used for farming, and certain areas are going to be used for shepherding, and, and all these other nations are going to be around them in this way, and this is where the temple will be. Like, God has established things in a certain way. And uh, at the same time, God is aware that uh, year in and year out, things might change. Um, And in God's economy, there is a longing for the people to see that uh, they belong to Him. Their families, their tribes belong to Him. Their fields, their uh, produce, their flocks, their land, it all belongs to Him. And so they should recognize that he has a particular way that things should be, that he wants things to be. Mm-hmm. And because things might change over the years, he has built into his economy a way to uh, revert back to the way things should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of the the, the impetus behind uh, the, this particular set of, mm-hmm. of commands, is, is how do we... Uh, get back to what God had intended for us as a people, even as things happen in life. So God goes into to great detail in this chapter about um, how we should live, as is, and he lays it out to Moses. Um, does this chapter argue against the idea of the watchmaker God who simply winds up the universe and then disengages? 
Yeah, uh, almost uh, like uh, deism, right? Deism mm-hmm. is this idea that God is out there, um, right. and he has done some things, but for the most part, he's uninvolved. Um, and, uh, you know, it does. This this passage really talks about that um, in the fact that God raises this rhetorical question. You know, one of the principles he says is that the land will be farmed uh, f- for six years, and on the mm-hmm. seventh year, it shouldn't be farmed. Um, and that there's going to be enough uh, natural vegetation and plants and stuff to feed. You can eat those th- that food if you want, um, but you're not supposed to glean anything that you've planted. You're not supposed to take any grapes or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And God raises this rhetorical question. You might say, how are we supposed to live if we can't plant in the seventh year? And he responds by talking about his involvement. So this is uh, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 21. God says, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat that old until the ninth year when its crop comes. Mm -hmm. So what God is saying is, you need to understand Israel that I'm commanding this thing to you, and I'm the one who is going to provide for you in order to enable you to follow my command, right? He doesn't answer, I guess you're going to have to figure this out, Israel. I've done my part, and I've told you what to do. I, God is saying, I'm going to take care of all of it. And it communicates an intimate involvement in even the most mundane of processes. And we see Jesus talk similarly in the Gospels about uh, the, the parable of the sower who plants and doesn't even know how things grow, and doesn't mm. even understand how the water comes down and the shoots grow. Like, he doesn't get it, but he knows that he's supposed to go and follow, because God is intimately involved in even the most simplistic and mundane of processes of creation. Yeah, I mean, one of the main messages in this, in, or uh, yeah, messages in this sermon was the idea that it's God's world, so he gets to make the rules. But why as a society are we so opposed to giving God credit and following his rules? Well, you know, society, that's kind of a high-level question, and I'm, yeah. and I don't know that I'm qualified to answer that, but I can tell you why I dislike it and why okay. I struggle with it. Um, and it's because if God makes the rules, then I don't get to make the rules. That's true. <laughs> and, Amen. Uh, and, That's and, right. And uh, if it's God's world, uh, and He is intimately involved in all the little things in life, then I don't get to take credit for my successes. And mm-hmm. I do have a responsibility to listen to Him and obey uh, the things that He has commanded us to do, right? I have to... Uh, I don't get to just do whatever I want whenever I want, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't have ultimate freedom. I think it comes down to dependence. Yeah. We don't like the idea that we are dependent. We want to be independent, make our own rules, follow our own paths, our own desires. Um, and if this is God's world, then I am not truly uh, the king of my castle. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's, that's well said. Um, so other cultures at that time in, in the ancient world uh, followed gods who also made demands— how is Yahweh different? <laughs> uh, well, as he says, um, they are nothing more than carved stone or wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are nothing but mere corpses, um, and God is living and active mm-hmm. and uh, alive and real. Uh, but I think what you're getting at is uh, how did the demand structure work? And yeah. 
one of the things that we see from uh, all other, um, you know, theistic cultures is that the gods make demands and people follow them with the hopes that it will please the god, mm. with the hopes that it will elicit a blessing. Now, but when it comes to God, the one true God, Yahweh, uh, demands uh, are in response to blessing, mm-hmm. uh, not the other way around. So for when it comes to Israel, um, God has already saved them, freed them from slavery in Egypt, protected them as they wandered through the desert. Uh, he's already prepared and in some sense uh, committed to given, giving the land to the people. Th- these are all mm-hmm. blessings. And now he is articulating how he wants the land run, right? So demand mm. follows blessing. Uh, one of the ways that we often uh, say it in, uh, you know, pastor circles, scholar circles, whatever, mm. uh, I- I- imperatives follow indicatives. Mm. So uh, blessing comes before demand. Right. What God has done follows uh, precedes what God requires us to do. Mm-hmm. So you said, um, let's let's actually let's go into the to the blessings more. Okay. Uh, you said built into these rules were the blessings of rest, redemption, and restoration. I, w- I want to look at each of these uh, individually, and let's start with rest. How sure. is rest built into these rules? Yeah, well, in this passage, it's really two ways. And the first and most obvious is uh, God says that the land itself gets a Sabbath, right? And Sabbath, we know from the establishment of the the work week and God's own creative practices, uh, the Sabbath is resting from work. And so what God is saying here is even the land gets rest, um, implying how important rest actually is. And, and in an agricultural context, this makes sense, right? There is less stress on the soil, mm-hmm. and so the, the ability for the land to produce more longer um, gives people rest, knowing that they can sustain life for generations to come, right? Mm-hmm. But there's also this sense that because of these um, patterns of life, that the people can rest knowing that God is providing, right? Even in the midst of hardship, if they have to sell their land, if they have to become indentured servants, that will only last so long. In the years of Sabbath, when there's not food being harvested, the people can rest knowing that God will take care of them. Rest is is, mm-hmm. is the overarching theme of all of these, um, but in particular, God, God is talking about the land itself getting rest. Mm-hmm. So anybody that's hung around Grace Church for a while, listened to the sermons, podcasts, whatever, have heard us talk a lot about rest. Why do we talk so much about rest? Because rest is one of the big ways that the gospel runs counter to society, right? The narrative Mm -hmm. of Silicon Valley um, is achieve, uh, and in some ways the way that I described the economy, bigger, faster, more. Mm-hmm. Um, and following Jesus, being saved, uh, being called to this life of dependence, starts with rest. And it is a mm-hmm. not not just an invitation. It certainly is an invitation, but it's a, a calling to awareness of the implicit necessity for rest. Mm-hmm. In in Christianity, the work week starts with rest. 
believe it or not, Sunday is the first day of the week. I know most of our calendars say it, right. but very few of us think of it that way. Right. right. We all think of Monday as the first day of the week. But in reality, God has us start our week with rest. And that's that's so different. That That mindset is so different than what our culture tells us is true. Um, and it brings about a trust and a, a reliance upon God and His work for us mm-hmm. that we, we talk about it a lot because we want it to be the basis of how we work at our jobs or engage with our friends, how we parent, how we live, how we consider our future and planning. Right, all of those things should come out of the rest that we have in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, mm-hmm. um, and so we we talk about it a lot because it is such a big countercultural statement. Yeah, I mean that we've talked about this before. This idea that if people were to ask how we're doing, if we said well rested, uh, first of all, they probably think we're from a different planet. Who who says well rested? But it is a distinctive thing that we try to do at our church. Yeah, or they might wonder what we invested in recently to be able to rest that much, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so the second blessing you mentioned is redemption. How is redemption built into these rules? So God establishes uh, this idea of uh, redemption because he understands that as life goes on in Israel, people are going to come into financial hardship and things are going to have to change from the way he established them. And, and he talks about two different examples, really. There's the the um, indebtedness of land and then the indebtedness of personal labor. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, if, if a person has to borrow money or they need to have some help, they might have to sell off a portion of their land to somebody else. Um, if things get really bad, they might get to the point where they sell themselves their their own labor uh, off as like an indentured servant. And so God says, that's not cool. I don't want that to just be the case, because it's my land, and I have a particular way I want this to run. And so he, he establishes this idea of redemption, wherein if a person sells off their land or, you know, needs to do that, but is able to pay for it back, the person whom they sold it to needs to sell it back. It it can be redeemed, right? Mm. That's where we get this idea of redemption from. We've talked about redemption before, this idea of purchasing back something that was lost or sold Mm. off um, into debt or for some necessity. Um, And uh, God establishes like several steps of redemption in these laws. The first is if you sell your land or your own labor and you can purchase it back, you have the ability to do it. If you can't, your nearest relative or someone close to you in your family that has the means to purchase your land or your freedom should do it as well. If they can't, and at some point in your service or after years of selling your land away, you come into some money and are able to purchase it back, you should be able to. Um, Or if not, a close relative who comes into some money should be able to purchase it back, right? This is mm-hmm. this is the idea of uh, what's known as kinsman, redeemer. Mm. Uh, you and your family together are able to work towards pulling life back to the place where um, God intended it to be. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned in your sermon, I think you made the connection between that concept, the kinsman, kinsman redeemer, and Jesus. Yes. How, how, what is that connection? 
Right, so the, the Hebrew word is goel, um, that kinsman, redeemer, a, a member of the family, a close relative who can use their resources to redeem, to purchase back what has been lost or sold or, or whatever. And uh, this theme appears uh, throughout Scripture, right? We think most clearly of the book of Ruth, which is a story of a kinsman redeemer who uh, is able to lift this uh, woman who was married uh, to an Israelite who then died out of poverty and hopelessness by marrying her. Mm-hmm. Um, he used his resources um, of establishment in the community, his financial resources of being a single unmarried man to save this woman. And uh, what's really important with that story is that from her line, uh, her Ruth and um, Boaz get married, they have mm-hmm. a child, Obed, Obed fathers Jesse, and Jesse is the father of King David, which, Mm. as we know, is in the line of Jesus. So there's some importance there with the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. But even just in the principle of a close relative who uses their resources to purchase back what has been lost or sold, uh, that all, all of the instances of uh, kinsman redeemers in the the Bible point us to Jesus, Mm. who became like us, like part of our family, a close relative. And he used his resources, righteousness, earned righteousness, to purchase our freedom by paying for the debt of our sin. <laughs> and so th- this, this narrative, this idea, this theme of Goel, the, the kinsman redeemer, points us to how God will redeem us. And, and let's talk about this relationship between us and Jesus. I think you mentioned in your sermon that, that Jesus is our brother, that's how he's, he's a, a, a kinsman to us. Uh, but how so, though? Uh, the Bible tells us that uh, in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was made like us in every way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't like he was just uh, playing a game, put on a facade, uh, but he struggled and suffered in every way. I remember when I was in seminary, I might have told this story before. Please excuse me if I have. Um, I tell so many stories that they all get lost. But no uh, I was in seminary teaching um, first grade Sunday school. Nicole and I were teaching first grade Sunday school at our church. And I can't remember what the lesson was about, but one of the little first graders raised their hand and they were like, Did Jesus lose baby teeth? Huh. That never came up on a single seminary test ever. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I was it's just like, of, "Of course he did." But yeah. there's a there's an element of humanity that uh, this first grader understood that I just completely glossed over. But it's really important because uh, we all lose our baby teeth. Mm. We all fall and skin our knees. We all. Uh, have trouble sleeping at night sometimes. We all lose friends, and we all miss our parents when we're not around them, and we all uh, long to to have more friends and more time or more fun, whatever it is. Jesus was made like us in every way. Mm-hmm. And what's really important about that as Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says, is that he was tempted in every way we are tempted, mm-hmm. right? And uh, that's, that's really important because we share a humanity. Um, but more than that, the New Testament articulates how, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been united to Him mm-hmm. in a way that creates a bond that is deeper than family. So brotherhood is the way that we can talk about it, but there is a bond that is deeper than blood itself mm-hmm. um, because of the uniting that we have through the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is our brother, 
um, in the sense that he is like us in every way, but also in the sense that we are united to him with a bond that cannot be broken. Okay, so I'm going to play the first grader now who is in junior high. Okay. And this first grader is going to ask this, who's now in junior high. When we pray to our Heavenly Father, are we praying to just God the Father or the entire Trinity? Yeah, okay, deep theology here. That's <laughs> um, not the question I thought a middle schooler was going to ask about the, that. The high school student, maybe. No, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's great. I went in a different direction and got scared for a minute, so All right, good. <laughs> I'm glad. Uh, are we praying just to the Father or yeah. to the entire Trinity? Um, so, according to Jesus, when he talks about what prayer should be, we pray to the Father through the Son, as the Holy Spirit generates faith in us. So mm. the Trinity is at work, but prayer goes to the Father. This is the Lord's Prayer. It's a perfect example right. of this. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, Our Father, who art mm. in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right. And we know that we should be praying in Jesus' name because he is the one who intercedes for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only reason that we know to pray or know how to pray or even that we are communicating the things we don't know to pray is because of the Holy Spirit. So uh, that's why we pray the Lord's Prayer in church at Grace every Sunday, is because Jesus says, do it this way. And we know that there are lots of prayers that we pray and lots of ways we can talk to God, but we know that this is the way that we should pray. So that's a simplistic answer. If you really are looking more for this young middle school person or adult mm-hmm. out there, um, I would recommend a book called If God Already Knows Why Pray, uh, which mm. was written by one of my seminary professors, Dr. Doug Kelly. Um, and it's super helpful about prayer, particularly if you have been uh, a, a follower of Jesus for a while, or maybe you grew up in the church and prayer is just kind of one of those things that you do and you don't necessarily think about a lot. Um, it's a small book, but it's very, 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 very th- heady, thick, mm. um, but valuable to understand that uh, their prayer is so powerful and so important, yeah. and it's a communication that we are invited into, um, mm. which is uh, a huge gift to us. Yeah, and that we certainly want to be praying people in a praying church, uh, for sure. Um, okay, so let's go back to the blessings. The third blessing that you mentioned is restoration, and at the heart of this chapter is the idea of jubilee. So what is it, and how does it apply to us? Yes, jubilee. So every seventh year, the land was supposed to lay fallow, no farming, right? And what God says is after seven cycles of seven years, that's 49 years, the Mm -hmm. following year, the 50th year, was to be a year of jubilee, the the year that the trumpet was sounded, and that by decree, the land would be restored to the way God intended it. So people who were slaves were to be set free. The land itself would revert completely to the way that God had originally established it. Each family, each clan, each tribe would return to the land that God had originally established given them. And it was another year of non-farming. And so this was a a huge year of blessing where everything would go back to the way God intended it. Mm. And it never happened, ever. Wow. As far as we know, in all of Jewish literature, whether, um, you know, whether it's a sacred text or a common text, a historical text, 
the year of Jubilee is never recorded to have happened. Wow. But it was so important and so powerful that even the 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 prophets longed for this day to the long for this year to happen, right? We, we saw this from Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah, the Lord's servant coming and inaugurating this year of Jubilee. And uh, this uh, is really important to see that Jesus shows up in, I think it's Mark 4 we looked at, where he mm. reads this prophecy of Isaiah, rolls up the scroll, and says, today this prophecy is fulfilled, meaning... Mm. Jesus is the servant of God Isaiah longed for to inaugurate the year of Jubilee. So, in saying that, Jubilee has begun, and we are living in it. Wow, that's cool. Amazing. So we don't need to do anything more right now. We, we can wait for the, the to the end when it will be the ultimate Jubilee, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it seems like when we look at this rest, restoration, and redemption, these are rhythms that really are different from the way that we, our economy works. So what would it look like to actually build these rhythms into our life? I think it's a lot harder than it seems on the surface, to be honest. I think this is, um, this is a, a area of uh, work in our lives that we really need um, help from other people, but ultimately help from the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I think God has built in a, a rhythm of rest in into our, our work week, and it's so easy to ignore. I was talking with, mm. we had a, um, uh, we're recording this on a Monday, and I, we had a family over for dinner last night after church, um, and we were talking about, uh, you know, how Sunday usually operates as a pastor, and one of the things I said is, like, I, I recognize that it's a day of rest, mm-hmm. but I also know that, like, Monday's going to get really hectic, and maybe I could cheat just a little bit on the work thing and mm. and and read ahead for next week's sermon. Yeah, yeah. Right? And like the temptation to do a little work um is always there because I always feel behind. Right. Um and I I think that happens to all of us uh, at some point or another, some of us all the time. And so w- one of the ways I think we build a rhythm of rest into our lives is to understand that not getting the work done is okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to fail at a few things here and, and realize yeah. that we're, we're still good. God still loves us and provides for us and approves of us, right? Maybe we need to adjust our work schedules so that the rest schedule can happen. Uh, by the way, I did not read uh, at all last night for my sermon, so if this week's Very sermon good. is terrible, uh, it's on God, not me. Exactly. Right? Yeah, you did, you, know, you did what you needed to do. Uh, anyway, just actually taking up God's rhythm, built-in rhythm of rest. But what about redemption? I think that's a, yeah. an important one for us to look at. Um, and I, I think there's two aspects of this here. The first is recognizing that your resources don't just belong to you, mm-hmm. right? But your resources are given to you by God, right? Everything belongs to God in order for you to help redeem someone else, right? And and that means that you have to be aware of other people's shortfall and their shortcomings. Uh, when people need help, uh, you know, I, I often hear people say like, oh, this is the reason I never want to buy a truck is because I don't want people to ask me to help them move. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, if somebody understands right. that you have a resource that other people want to borrow, right? This, right, this applies right. to everything that we have. Our mm-hmm. time, our treasure, our talent, as we say mm. all the time at Grace. Uh, but the inverse of this is true, too. You have to be willing to open up about your shortcomings to other people, to give them the opportunity to help you, right? And that's really uncomfortable for us. We like to have everything together, tied up nicely in a bow, 
but we're all falling short somewhere. We all need help somewhere, whether it's mm-hmm. relationally, financially, socially, work-wise, school-wise, whatever. We're all falling short. And so to be able to, to go to someone who has resources we know can help us and say, I don't know how to get this done. I can't mm-hmm. figure this out. I'm floundering. I'm alone. Will you help me? Mm-hmm. Big. That's huge. That's redemption at work. Yeah. It's also really hard. Uh, restoration, I think, is 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 another hard one because uh, there's so many things that we see going wrong in the world, and we can justify those wrongs, right? Uh, mm. You know what? That that person shouldn't have made those decisions and gotten into that situation, right? Like, oh, so yeah, you you uh, you've really messed your own life up. Uh, and so, I, you know, one of the one of the things I, I think that we can do to work a rhythm of restoration. Uh, into our life uh, is, uh, in particular, in Silicon Valley, is building community, right? And this Mm -hmm. is something that I think we try to do and have done well for a while as a church, but understanding that people are alone, and they feel Mm -hmm. alone. And so utilizing the space that we have, whether it's our home, our backyard, whatever it might be, or the space that is there, a a coffee shop, a community, park, whatever it is, to bring people closer together, uh, because uh, that is the way God intended us to live, is in community. We are made in the image of a creator that is a community, and so people who are alone are suffering the effects of sin. And so what does it look like to draw people together? I think that's one really good way. I'm sure there's a lot of other great ways, and I would love to hear from people listening if you have great ways of how to build a rhythm of restoration into mm. your life. I mean, all those things, restoration, rest, and so forth, all of these rules that you've mentioned that God laid out to Moses are designed to bless us, to make our life better. Right. So why is it so difficult to receive the blessings? <sighs> Because achievement and production are far more seductive. Mm-hmm. Um, when I can show people what I've done or what I can do, that makes me feel a lot better. Um, when I work hard and I succeed because of my efforts, that feels a lot better. Um, when I have to wait for God to do what He wants done, um, I don't know if I'm ever going to feel better. And so we operate so quickly upon feeling as opposed to allowing the truth to influence our feelings. Um, I think uh, that that's part of why receiving God's blessings are hard. Um, you know, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I think everybody's got a little bit of a different story when it comes to receiving blessings. Um, how so, does uh, how does trust figure into it? I mean, is it is there an element that we just don't trust that God is actually Gonna come through for us? Yeah, I, uh, sure. Uh, you know, this is this is the the story of Israel simply forgetting the blessings of God that preceded the requirements, right? And this is this is us too. We forget mm. what God has done for us, and and I think that's how we grow, right? We got to grow in our trust. Um, and one of the ways we do is we got to recount how God has shown up when we've needed Him, right? We have to mm. testify, as mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. the church has said in ages Amen. past. Um, yeah. uh, we have to tell each other how God has shown up. You know, before COVID, we used to have this 
uh, ministry that uh, Ed and Katie Chen ran called Stories of Grace. Mm. Uh, it would be awesome to get back to it. There's just, you know, time and people and yeah. all the things. And so, right. uh, but this was a great opportunity for uh, you to come and listen to someone tell their story, their their story of how God has uh, impacted them and is impacting them, because what it what it communicated is... God is at work far more than you suspect. Mm. God is is doing things when you think He is silent and absent, and that's how we grow in trust. Is we have to look back and see. It's that old poem that we, or you know, sure, a poem that we all yeah. j- joke about. Footprints in the sand, right? We look back, and there was one footprint, and someone's like, "God, why did you leave me?" Those were the rough times in my life, and that's when God says, "I actually was carrying you," right? I've got that poster right there. See that in the background? Yes. (laughs) We need that because we have to actually see that God is faithful and has been faithful. Mm. And the promise for Him to be faithful is not based upon a hope, but upon experience. And that's how we grow in trust, which leads us to to receive the benefits more as the Spirit reminds Mm. us of God's faithfulness. I mean, why don't we realize how good God is? Because we don't believe him to be good, mm-hmm. and and we define goodness differently, right? There, the Bible says God is not slow to act as some count slowness, but he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, right? Like God's timing is perfect, but it's not our timing, and so it doesn't seem good. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that right, like that this comes back to the the root of all sin, which is I want to be God. Mm. I want to dictate when things should be done and what things should be done and why they're done. And when God doesn't operate following my plans, then then I just assume that he's not doing good things because I'm the only one who can articulate what good is and he's not doing it that way. So the the disbelief of God's goodness I think comes from our desire to be God. Hmm. So you said in the beginning that um it's God's world so he can make the rules. Um, but the world is not only God's, but we, we're actually uh, God's people, right? We belong to God. Uh, and, and what are the implications of that? So belonging, I think, um, implies uh, ownership, mm-hmm. and we don't necessarily like that concept. But, uh, you know, we talk about freedom a lot, being mm-hmm. set free, Um but here in Exodus, or here in Leviticus, and also in Exodus, I'm not wrong there, in the Exodus too. Yeah, yeah. Um, God's understanding of what happened when he freed Israel um, is that they became his slaves, his mm-hmm. servants. Um, and that's very clearly stated, um, that they shouldn't be slaves to Egypt anymore because they are his servants. That's in this passage. The main difference being he's not a cruel master. Mm-hmm. But it, he is, in fact, a, a master who treats his servants as family members and blesses them like family members. Um, and this is, you know, one of the things that I remember articulating in one of my first sermons was uh, when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn right. from me. Um I, the the teachings of a rabbi at the time were called a yoke, and you you came under the yoke of a rabbi mm. to learn from them. And so that's literally what Jesus is talking about there, like follow in his teaching, 
because his teaching is easy and his burden is light. But the, why was it called a yoke? Yeah. Because it constrained the follower. It hmm. like the yoke on an oxen or a donkey or a horse that that led the the animal in the way that the driver wanted it to go, right? That's mm-hmm. why it was called a yoke. Jesus is still saying, "Come and be led by me." There is an ownership and a direction, and and in some ways, whether we like it or not, a control mm-hmm. of the person. The difference is. God is a good driver of oxen. God is a good master of servants and cares for us and treats us and knows the way we should go. Mm-hmm. And so what we see is that when we talk about belonging to God, it means that He is the one at work in us, changing us, renewing us, restoring us, and giving us rest mm-hmm. to become what we were intended to become. He is leading us home the home that he has prepared for us. And and ownership also implies responsibility. I mean, if, if we are gods, God God says, hey, you, you're mine. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. No one's going to touch you. I mean, that, that's the other side of it that's really comforting. Yeah. I mean, that's where the idea of rest comes from in this whole yeah. thing is like, actually, God is at work and responsible mm-hmm. and trustworthy to do the mm-hmm. right thing and what is good for us. Okay, so final question now. Um, how does Jesus make us more able to receive God's blessings? Oh, this is going to be rough. <laughs> rough. to end with this. All right. I always try to give you a zinger at the end. Jesus makes us more able to receive God's blessings through our brokenness. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, this is, this is tough, right? Yeah, because yeah. Um, the, the answer is sanctification. Right, becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy. Um, but the analogies that the Bible uses are pruning, mm-hmm. um, which is cutting away. Um, it's refining, which involves burning off the un- unnecessary, unuseful stuff. Um, and that's exactly what happens when we are broken, mm. is that all of the idols that we had trusted in all of the hopes in our own efforts and abilities uh, get beaten down, um, and that's exactly when we become aware of how present God is, of how much He is working. And in the midst of that brokenness, it's really hard to see that it is a blessing. Mm -hmm. But if you talk to people who have been through tragedy and loss and have experienced God redeeming and restoring that, they will look back on that brokenness and almost always articulate it as a a, a blessing. Not necessarily the suffering was a blessing, Mm -hmm. but being able to see God at work was a blessing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I... it's it's, It's hard, right? And this is this is what often being a pastor is, is walking with people through suffering until they get to the point where they can see God at work in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this is how God has always worked. He has worked with uh, broken, fallible, sinful, um, sometimes awful people 
um, blessing them, renewing them, restoring them, bringing them to rest. You know, all the, the heroes of Scripture are all terrible, terrible people, just like mm, us. Mm. Um, and uh, what makes that amazing is they are the ones who wrote those stories about themselves. And what they tell us is it was through those things that we came to understand God was at work in our lives. Yeah. Right? We think of Moses and uh, Jacob and Adam and Noah and David, and some of those guys didn't write those books, but, you know, we have Mm -hmm. the stories of what they did. Um, And Peter and these guys did bad things. They were Mm -hmm. broken in many, many ways. And the end of the story is God never let them go. Mm -hmm. God was always at work. And it's in those times that the blessings of restoration and redemption and rest became the only option. Mm -hmm. And that's where Jesus gives us the ability through the Holy Spirit at work within us to receive those blessings and trust and grow and become, honestly, more like Jesus. And I'm thinking back to your analogy, well, not the analogy, but the, the biblical concept of being yoked. I mean, I'm also picturing being yoked with Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden. And this idea of being yoked together, like we're never left alone in those times of suffering and and sanctifying and purification that Jesus is actually pulling with us through those those times. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Stephen, uh, thanks again for, uh, again, a great sermon. Uh, this whole series has been excellent, and, and thanks for, for your time this morning. Yeah, Matt, thank you. Appreciate it. The title of Stephen's sermon is God's Economy. It's part of our sermon series from the book of Leviticus. You can find that sermon and all our sermons and this podcast on iTunes and Spotify and on our website at gracesouthbay.com. We hope these conversations are helping you develop a closer relationship with Jesus. If you have questions about the Christian faith or just need someone to talk to, we've got pastors, elders, youth leaders, and a women's care team ready to help. We're just an email or a phone call away. If you have a prayer request, you can also go directly to our website at gracesouthbay.com and submit your requests using the prayer button at the top of the website. And if you're new to Grace South Bay, we would encourage you to fill out the Connect card and one of our pastors will reach out to you. And of course, we'd love to have you join us for Sunday morning worship. We meet at 9 a.m. at Crossroads Bible Church in San Jose. We'll be back next week with another episode of the GSB podcast. So stay tuned, stay connected, and be encouraged knowing that nothing can separate you from God's love. We look forward to our next time together. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks for listening.